Good morning again. If you would, open up your scriptures to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Man, what an exciting Sunday morning and a celebration and worship of God and what he's doing in our community here. Just in case uh, you didn't pick up on the slideshow that was happening, those are all the new members that have gone through the membership class and are officially members and uh, pictures of them that were going through the slideshow. Uh, Verse 24, if you would, read along with me. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filled up with what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mysteries hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for the celebration this morning, Lord. I thank you for the church as we've been reflecting on on what that means and the responsibilities of pastor, flock, of members, the body, Lord. As we've been talking about this subject the last few weeks, Lord, I thank you for the church. I pray this morning, Lord, that you have received honor and glory as we celebrate, Lord, what's going on in this body. God, we understand that this body is a small part of the universal body, Lord, the church universal, Lord, but yet, as we see in this passage I just read, Lord, the local church is so important. Help us to see that this morning, Lord. Help us to see your wisdom reflected in the church. Be with us in your son's name. Amen. Again, look at verse 24. I actually was reading... um, This week, and this verse just jumped out at me. Look what it says in verse 24. Now I, this is Paul, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. That kind of hit me real hard when I read that that this week. For whose sake? The church. Right? A local church. Right, this letter was written to the church of Colossae, so a local church. Look what it says. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am filled up with what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Two weeks ago we did a, I did a sermon on membership. The elders asked me to do a, a sermon on membership and why we believe here at Country Oaks in membership. Last week, I felt the need to do a sermon on church government, uh, what we 
believe uh, the Bible teaches on how a church is to operate between pastor and flock. Today, I just want to do a sermon, real briefly, on the importance of the church. The importance of the church. Why was Paul so dedicated to the church? Again, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. There's a number of ways we can answer this, but if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to be jumping around scriptures this morning again. We typically take a book and we go through the the book verse by verse and we have been in Exodus and we're going to get back into Exodus starting next week. During the summer, we've been doing kind of standalone sermons, topical sermons, but really exegeting passages on different topics. But we'll be back in Exodus uh, next week and I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through Exodus, but I wanted to go over this passage this morning, and this passage in Ephesians is a parallel text to the passage in Colossians. So just read along with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Of this gospel, I, again, this is Paul, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, with which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plain, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In verse 10, listen to this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. That, that's angels. In the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities, when those, those phrases are used, is talking about angels. In other words, God is displaying his wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God through us, the church. Now just take a second and think about that. And you know, we go past these verses sometimes and we don't like contemplate on what that actually means and how profound that is. Even with all its flaws, and the church has many flaws, we have many flaws for sure. One of God's purposes for the church is to display his manifold wisdom to the angels on a cosmic scale. Manifold is actually a really interesting word. It's not one that we use all that often. In Greek, it's polupoikylos. Compound words, so there's two words put together. The first one is poly, many. It means pertaining to, to that which is different in a number of ways many, diverse, manifold, many sided. Again, it's a compound word. It literally means many colored. Many colored wisdom, in other words. This word is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used in the Septuagint to describe Joseph's coat of many colors, many colored wisdom. The wisdom of God displayed in the church, in other words, is many-sided. It's like a diamond. You can look at it in different angles and it shines. It shines from many different angles. I just 
Don't miss the significance of that, right? God's wisdom is being displayed in us, the church, to the angels, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One pastor put it this way, and I really like this. In the classroom of God's universe, God is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Again, we're going to be jumping around a lot this morning, but, but I want you to see this. Turn, turn there. I'll give you some time to get there, because Peter says something very similar to what Paul says. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It says this, verse 10, concerning this salvation, right? This is the topic of this passage, so keep that in mind. This great salvation. The prophets, this is talking about Old Testament prophets. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah wanted to know about this great salvation that was coming. So they searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11 says this, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he preached the sufferings of Christ, the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now listen to this. Things. Things, this great salvation, things into which angels long to look. Angels wanted to know. They long to look concerning the salvation, how and when God was going to save his people. Can you just imagine that? I mean, just think of it from the angel's perspective. Let's, let's just do that. If you would, turn one more place. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Many of us are very familiar with this passage. Verse 1 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah has this, this vision of God. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In verse 2, listen to this. Above him stood the seraphim. Those are angels. Seraphim. I want you to hear the description of these angels. Each had six wings. Why six wings? Two to cover their face. Why? Because even the sinless beings that have never rebelled against God like man has, can't look upon God. He's too holy. He's too glorious. He's too bright. They have to hide their face. In fact, God gave them an extra pair of wings just to hide their face 
in the presence of God. And with two, he covered his feet, which was a sign of humility. And with two, he flew. And one, this angel, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled full of his glory. This is what angels do. They worship and praise God. They sing holy, holy, holy over and over and over and over again, praising God for his glory, for his holiness. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, this is Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, Isaiah is undone. He says, I am a sinner. I am doomed. Because I am in the presence of a holy God. Then verse 6. Then one of the seraphim, again, this angel, flew to me, that's Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. You think of a hot coal from a fire. And he touched my mouth. In other words, a hot coal touched his lips. Now think about that. The pain. Your lips are one of the most sensitive spots in your body. Touched my lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's an amazing passage. I've preached on it a number of times. I'm sure you've heard a number of pastors preach on this passage. But I just want you to think of the seraphim, these six-winged angels singing, Holy, holy, holy. They can't even look at this God. Can you imagine what these angels thought when this God that they couldn't look at, whose train of his robe filled the temple? In other words, Isaiah doesn't give a description of God because he's too bright. <laughs> like, he's too holy. He describes the things around him. Even his clothes are glorious. Can you imagine what these angels thought when the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, can you imagine what they thought when this God came to earth as a baby? Philippians 2.6 Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God. Think Isaiah 6. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, a thing to be held on to. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's angels there in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Can you imagine what they were thinking? And they saw this baby in a manger. Surrounded by animals, a helpless baby, a human. Just think about that for a second. How about this? The temptations of Jesus. 40 days without food. 
Satan tempting Jesus, like in battle, blaspheming God to Jesus. Jesus is starving to death, physically weak. And at the very end, in Matthew 4, verse 11, it says this, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him, to Jesus. Can you imagine what those angels were thinking? Jesus is weak, not in his spirit, not in his divinity, but weak in his humanity. Physically weak, truly human. He was hungry, he was thirsty. And angels came and were ministering to him. What about the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus gets a taste of God's wrath taste of the cup that was coming and one taste brings him to his knees he staggers he stumbles, he screams it says that in the Greek, he screams he sweats blood, Luke twenty two forty one says this and he withdrew from about a, a stone thrown away and, and knelt down and prayed saying father if you are willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done Then verse 43 says this, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Just think about that. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Can you imagine what that angel thought? The one strengthening him. One taste of God's wrath almost killed him in his humanity again. Can you imagine what that angel thought when he heard Jesus say, not my will, but yours? Why? Jesus, why are you doing this? Can you imagine what the angels were thinking when the Roman guards drove nails through his hands? What did they think when Jesus died for men who have rebelled against him? His disciples who left him, that rejected him, that all followed after Satan, men that mocked him, spat on him, beat him, killed him. Why would anyone die for these sinners? I just wonder, and I think about these things, how much the angels actually knew. Did the angels know that God the Son would be the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? I'm guessing they did. Isaiah 53, 4, predicting Jesus saying this, Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep we have gone and strayed, we have turned everyone to his own way. 
In other words, we're all sinners. And the Lord laid on him, God the Son, the iniquities of us all. Listen, when the angels, right, when the seraphim flew down in in Isaiah 6, verse 6, with the burning coal and touched Isaiah's lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sins atoned for. Did that angel know that the burnt lips pointed to the real atonement for sin? Pointed to the suffering servant, the one crushed by God for our sins. Did he know that it pointed to Jesus? The same God that they were singing holy, holy, holy to? These are the things into which the angels longed to look, and they witnessed it all. And listen, they will sing forever and ever. They will praise God for it. They will glorify God for his mercy and grace, for his holiness and justice displayed on the cross. How about this? Can you imagine the joy the angels had when Jesus was raised from the dead? Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Can you imagine the joy? How about the joy at the ascension? When Jesus was restored to his rightful place at the right hand of God, the angels were there. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And we had said these sayings, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood there in white robes. These are two angels. They look like men. They witnessed the ascension. And then they tell the apostles, he'll come back, go get to work. That's a paraphrase, just saying. Listen, in Luke 15, 10, Jesus tells us that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy before the angels every time someone is saved. Because salvation is a miracle. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Then verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He raised the dead. It's a miracle. Can you imagine what was going on in heaven when Paul was saved? The great persecutor of the church. Knocked off his horse. Brought to his knees in repentance. Mercy and grace poured out on him. 
Can you imagine what was going on in heaven when thousands and thousands were saved through the ministry of Paul and the apostles? Go through the book of Acts and you see churches planted throughout the whole Roman Empire, the whole known world. Listen, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. That's angels in the heavenly places. Through the church, God's wisdom is being made known to angels on a cosmic scale. That's just an amazing thought. And we, in modern-day Christianity, act like the church isn't important. It is. That's why I've spent so much time talking about it these last three Sundays. It is. God is displaying his manifold wisdom through the church. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 says this. And one of the elders said to me, this is John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, and, behold, er, and between the throne and the four living creatures. Let me just stop there. The four living creatures. You know what those are? Angels. These are the cherubim. Angels. They're, they're massive scary-looking angels. They're frequently talked about in the Old Testament. Ezekiel has this long description of them. They're not cute, fluffy angels with harps. These are massive, scary angels, typically connected to God's presence, his power, and his holiness. Amazing angels. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's Jesus with seven horns and with seven eyes uh, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth and he went and, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowl full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying, again, these angels are worshiping God. They're singing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you hear that? The angels are worshiping Jesus for his work of redemption. Redeeming people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the church. Look at verse 11. Then I look and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels 
numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And just so you know, this is a biblical way of saying beyond calculation. Saying with a loud voice, and you better believe this is a loud voice. They sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom. Manifold wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever. And the four living creatures, these massive angels, said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Listen, this right here, what we just read, this is God's eternal purpose. His glory. To be worshipped for His work of redemption forever. To be worshipped by the angels for His grace and mercy poured out on the church forever and ever and ever. Now turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10. Again, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. Those are angels. You know what? Those are godly angels and even fallen angels. God is displaying his glory to all angels in the heavenly places. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was God's purpose, his eternal purpose for the church that that spans from eternity past. He predestined before the foundations of the earth, eternity past to eternity future. God's eternal purpose is his glory. Again, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One pastor put it this way. The church does not exist simply for the purpose of saving souls. Though that is a marvelous and important work. You know, I, I think most people think that this is the only purpose of the church, is to go out and save souls. And I think that's why a lot of people go, well, then why do I need to be a part of a church? I can do that without a church. Go out and share the good news. But that's not the only purpose. In fact, it's not the main purpose of the church. The supreme purpose of the church, as Paul makes um, explicit here, is to glorify God. It's to worship God. It's to praise God. It's to glorify God by manifesting his wisdom before the angels who can then offer greater praise to God. The purpose 
of the universe is to give glory to God. Even now, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim, the skies above proclaim his handiwork, Psalms 19.1. The church is not an ends in itself, but a means to an end, and the end is glorifying God. The real drama of redemption can only be understood when we realize that the glory of God is the supreme goal of creation and the church. This is why the church is so important. Not only is it the bride of Christ, and just take a second and think about that before you criticize the church too harshly, that's the bride of Christ. Not only is it the body of Christ here on earth. In fact, when Paul was persecuting the church, what did Jesus say when he knocked him off his horse? Why are you persecuting me? That's my body. But through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This this is why the church is so important. It glorifies God. And I believe this is why Paul was so dedicated to the church. Again, the parallel text in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 says this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am filled up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. There's so many people that get hurt by the church, don't like the worship of the church, say the sermons are too long, so they just don't go. They're not a part of the church. And Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. You know, I read this verse and just hit me. After three weeks of preaching about the church and really belonging and being a part of the church, a local church, being a belonging to Country Oaks, I just read this verse and it hit me so hard. Look at how committed Paul is to the church. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, right? The church, the local church. For the sake of his body, that is the church. And it hit me as I was thinking about it. Paul was just really modeling Christ's love for the church. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul was just modeling this love by suffering for the church, by being committed to the church, by loving the church sacrificially. Paul really just loved what Christ loved because Paul truly loved Christ. Therefore, he loved the bride of Christ. I've said this time and time again. If you say, hey, Nathan, I love you, man. But I really can't stand Sarah. How many times do we say, I love Christ, but the church? 
Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Charles Spurgeon, again, I've quoted this. Nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us also belong to it. That by our prayers, our gifts, our labors, we may support and strengthen it. Again, when I say the church, I mean you guys. Not this building. You guys. In fact, the church enters in this building on Sunday mornings. The church isn't this building. It enters into this building on Sunday mornings. Let's be that dedicated to each other. I'm going to end by saying this. Small groups are starting up next month. We have five new small groups. Daniel has been doing his job, and he's doing a good job. We have five new small groups. If you really want to get plugged in and belong to the church, not just attend, but really belong, I would just encourage you to join a small group. And, and listen to this. So many people want to serve, and we want you to serve. You're called to serve. Use your giftings to serve the body. You know where that happens best? Really, actually, in a small group. I, I think sometimes we think if it's not official, like Sunday morning service somehow, then I'm not serving the church. But remember, the church is people. If you're serving people, you're serving the church. And if you're intimately in a small group and you can see needs very clearly when you're, when you're closely connected to a group of people, then you can use your giftings to serve those people. And you're doing what you're called to do. So I would encourage you to join a growth group. It's what we call small groups, growth groups. We call them that on purpose because we believe growth really happens there. Get so connected that 1 Corinthians 12, 26 happens. If one member suffers, all suffer together. I know that's true in our group. One of us suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. That happens best in small, intimate growth groups. So I'd encourage you to join a growth group. Look for one that's starting up. If you're not, if you don't belong to one, ask Daniel for a good place to just get connected into one of those groups, and he'll be able to point you to the right place. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this body, Lord, this local body here, Country Oaks, my family, Lord. God, I was convicted, even as the pastor here, Lord, by, by Paul, and how much he is willing to suffer and sacrifice for the bride of Christ, the church, Lord. Help me to have that same attitude. Help me, Lord, to love the body as much as Christ loved the body. I know that's impossible, Lord, but, but give me the spirit, Lord, to do that. God, I pray that's true for every single person that calls Country Oaks their home, that they were that dedicated to one another, Lord. And as I pray all the time, I pray that that love just affects this community, that people see it and go, there's something different about that church. Look how they love each other. As division just goes across the land here, 
in America, Lord. I pray the church shows a unity that's supernatural, a love that is supernatural that can only come from you. I pray that's true here in your son's name. Amen.